Thank you, Pastor Matt, for leading us as we worship our awesome God through singing and through music. Uh, and as we continue to worship our awesome God, I hope that you will take the time to open up your Bible to Zechariah chapter 13. And we'll be in chapter 13 all the way to 14 as we end off this wonderful book that reminds us of the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And as I was studying this passage uh, earlier this week on Wednesdays, we have this family tradition where we kind of let the kids stay up a little later and we watch uh, Survivor. Uh, which is, I know it, it's weird, but we seem to really enjoy it. I haven't watched it in 20 years until this, well, this quarantine that has happened. And as I'm watching it, they're playing this game to, uh, and get this kind of this, um, they're playing a game that enables them to uh, not be voted out of the island, off of the island. And as they're playing this game, the whole point of this game is that they have to hold up their arm and their arm is attached by a Velcro, uh, like an arm wrist and to a chain with a big bucket that is above their head full of water. And as you lower your hand, obviously, the bucket will tip over and pour the water on you, which means that you lose. So the object is to keep your arm above your head the entire time and be the last person. It was an amazing uh, feat of, of strength and really endurance and perseverance for those who, who won because you think about it, oh, that's not that hard. You're just keeping your hand up above your head. But even as I'm doing this right now, I can feel the strain on my shoulder. It is in, incredibly hard for them to do that. You know, Sometimes you, you look at that and, and you reflect upon that in, in your own life and you're thinking, oh, this is not too bad. I can hold this. I can keep going. This is not too bad. But even the weight of your arm can become so hard to hold over time. You think about it. It's not that bad. But holding that arm extended is, is hard work. No matter how strong you are, you will eventually drop your arms. Just like so many of the other contestants did in that game. Now sometimes life feels just like that. It's not a lot of weight, but you've been holding it over your head for a long time. And no matter how strong you are, you won't be able to hold it for much longer. So how do we get the strength to walk through the small trials of today that will affect us even tomorrow. In Zechariah 13, verses 2 to 14, the end of 14 is an interesting closing to this minor prophet. We just saw last week how God promises to grant his people repentance and cleanse them from the sin and uncleanliness that is in, in, in them. You know, the section that we are about to get into follows up with the promise to remove idolatry, false prophecy, and the spirit of uncleanliness that's in the land. This is like the final battle. It shows that God will accomplish this through the striking of his own true shepherd that will come at a great loss to his people as well. But those who are refined will be brought into a relationship with God. God will then establish his rule over all the earth where all his people will come and worship. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2 to the closing. So the word of the Lord says this. 
And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land of the prophets and the spirits of uncleanliness. And if anyone, against prophe- if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? And he will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into a fire and refine them as one refines silver, And test them as gold is tested. They shall call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, these, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming from the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west for a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living water shall flow out of from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter." And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its side, at its sight, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall be never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will not 
uh, sorry, their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will not rot in their socket, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses and the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives at all the nations, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall be shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice to them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. In verses 2 to 6 of chapter 13, we see that the land is cleansed. In verse 2, it says, on that day. You know, what a great phrase that continues on all the way from chapter 12. It is the day that God will establish his kingdom. It is the day that God will finally remove everything that's in the way. He will cleanse everything. And he does that by, as he says later, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. God will remove not only the idols, but the powers and the relationships of worship that have been given to other things instead of him. The people won't call on the name of an idol. They will call on the name of the Lord. And he will remove even the prophets of that land. See, these aren't prophets of God. These are false prophets. They are the ones who have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And God will remove a spirit of uncleanliness. This is a contrast to God's spirit, a contrast to the spirit of grace that we saw in chapter 12, verse 10. It even goes to the point that in verse 3 it says that if anyone even prophesies, even the parents whom we assume would love their child, will pierce their son for doing these false prophecies. And on that day, God's people will no longer tolerate sin and uncleanliness in their community. You know, it's an interesting thing. 
we see that on this day, uh, people, the people, the, the land, God's people, won't tolerate sin to the point that even the parents of the child will not tolerate their child's sin. The false prophets will be unmasked and removed. No, this is a time when God will clean the land. For the church, what does this mean? For us at Knollwood, what does this mean? It means that there is no room for tolerating the things that God does not tolerate. I was reminded, uh, even on the way here today, that how often we as a church, as a big C church, universal church, seem to tolerate sin. And, and when we don't tolerate sin, we're easily branded as being legalistic. Now, we need to be careful on how we address the sin in those that we come and worship together. But there is no room for tolerate, tolerating sin within God's church. It's not legalistic. It's what God commands of his people. His people are to be holy. And we are to seek to be that. But how do I know the difference between what is true and what is false? And, uh, there's always that hashtag, right? If you're ever on Twitter or Facebook, there's this hashtag, hashtag false news. And, and how do we know the difference between what is true and what is false? Well, we need to compare it to a greater truth. For us as Christians, how do we know the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet is that we take their words and we apply it to the grid of God's word and we test it like the Bereans do in Acts. They tested Paul's words to what God has said in his word to see if they were true. Why is why it's so important that we as a church be a people of the word of God? And allow the Spirit of God to use His Word to, to change us, to make us more like Christ. So that we don't tolerate sin, but that we also hold it with the tension of love and grace. In our prayer meeting this week, someone asked for prayer, saying that even though we aren't able to gather, that we would be still a people that are seeking God. Wouldn't that be great that when we come out of this and that we can gather together, that we have grown in holiness and in our relationship with God to the point that we are so much more different than the world that is around us, that we shine brightly for him. That we would be like the Bereans who made Paul prove that what he was teaching was from the Bible. See, our greatest need at Knollwood, in the church, in Canada, in Ontario, in the world today, is that we would be a people like that, like the Bereans, like what David says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the ends. So we see that God comes and he begins to clean the land. But as he cleans the land, we see in verses 7 that the shepherd is struck and the sheep will scatter. What we are going to see in this section is that God commands the striking of his own. God is warring against his own friends. 
So it says right here in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This is a place of, of trust. This, this man that God is going to strike is, is standing right beside him. It's, it's a closeness, a, a close bond. Awake, O sword. God's justice is awakened and raised. A writer put it this way, Upon whom shall it fall? Not upon the wicked and the ungodly, but mystery of mysteries upon him who is not only absolutely innocent and holy, but who stands in the nearest and closest relationship with Jehovah. See, the sword is drawn not against the wicked, but against the true shepherd. You know, it's not a surprise because we've read this before in Zechariah that the sword would be drawn against God's true shepherd. We understand that. What is amazing is that God himself is the one who does it. Do you see what this passage is telling us about who God is and what he has done for you and for me? Because who is this shepherd? He is the man who stands next to me. He's literally a neighbor or a fellow. This person isn't just a man. It has to be someone who is divine in nature. This is the incarnate Jesus Christ who added to himself humanity. But why is it important that Jesus be both 100% man and 100% God? As this passage even says. As man, Jesus paid to God the, our debt. As God, he had the means to pay that debt. See, this isn't some sort of heavenly civil war that you see. This isn't like the Avengers civil war where, where, where a pack of heroes begin to attack one another. We know that it was God's will that Jesus would be killed so that we might be cleansed of our sin. It was this very reason that Jesus came into the world, that he lived an obedient life. This act was God's intent and design from the beginning of time. I was reflecting upon this before. If God is outside of time, he created time. So when he began to create us, he was aware of what was going to happen and how he would eventually have to come and pay a price for our own sin. It was this very reason that Jesus came into the world. This act was God's intent and design, and his outcome will be glorious, but it doesn't mean that there won't be any hardships. It was God's will that Christ be slain so that we might be cleansed of our sin. That's what verse 7 is saying. This relationship between the Father and the Son are what stand behind the gospel that we see throughout the Bible. It was, the, it was God the Father who, for love of us sinners, sent God the Son on a mission that would be victorious in the cross. It was there that God's judicial sword of wrath was struck against Jesus and not me. God is not reluctant in our salvation. The holy judge of all the universe is not forced to accept us against his wishes. In the, the most costly way to himself, he removed the barrier between us and him. 
so that all who trust in him may have life. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. But the result of this, this result of this, this slaying will be that the sheep will be scattered. And, and this is fulfilled as Jesus is crucified on the cross. We see even Jesus using this, this very passage to prophesy what will happen when he dies on the cross. The, his, his disciples scattered. And as we continue on, it says, In this whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and not one-third shall be left alive. You know, God begins to refine and to sanctify his people. That even with this amazing grace that we see in verses 7, it doesn't mean that we will not face trials in this life. That God's people would not suffer. But we see three things in this when we get to verse 3. Three things that we learn from this little, this little poem. God is interested in quality, not just quantity. See, the goal of this costly saving work is to have true fellowship with him. And God will do anything to refine us, to make us more like him, and to strengthen that relationship. We see some, the second thing is this, is that we see some amazing promises of grace. But there will be trials. It's through trials that we are refined. We see this in James. We see this in 1 Peter. That we grow through trials. And that we can expect trials in our Christian walk. The third thing is that these verses show us a love of God that is worthy of our most devoted love. See, these verses show us a God who loves us. All the trials that we see in verses 8 to 9 are in the context of what we see in verse 7. Is this not a love? Is this not a love worth seeking? See, God is striking his shepherd with a lover's fervor to rescue his own from the, their own house of destruction. God is willing to take on the most unimaginable sacrificial costs. God the Father strikes God the Son to spare the sword from us, from me, from you. I love it how this person put it. He says this, Here is the love our hearts have been seeking. A love that calls us not now through Jesus Christ. We will never find a love more fervent than that which overcame the guilt of our sin. We will never receive a love more determined than this, which works all through our lives to hear the words of our devotion to himself. God is love, says the Bible in 1 John 4, 8. And although we often shy away from thinking of him as a, a, a swooning romantic, he continues on, yet in the highest and most noble sense, God is a romantic. He is the first and the last of the red-hot lovers. All of his greatest work, his most costly gift, is aimed at this romantic end. 
to which he draws us even now. I will say, he says, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. See, in those few words, all of history, the great aim of God before there was even time achieves its true fulfillment and realization. The exchange of true love between God and his people through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. It's in this context. Verse 7 is so important. Because how many times do I cry out like the psalmist does in Psalm 13? How long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long? There is an in-betweenness of this life. God gives us great promises in the gospel that we even see here in, in verses 7 to 9. Then he calls us to wait for their fulfillment. He doesn't give us everything right away. He calls us to wait. In between the giving and the fulfilling of God's promise, the waiting can be, it can seem impossible, like you're holding up your arm. Sometimes it can seem impossible to endure because of what we're stuck in for now. It doesn't just fall short of God's great promises. It, it, our experience can be the opposite of God's great promise. We're living in this land of in-between that is just not easy. But God's greatest gift is not always what we think. God's greatest gift is himself, which comes only through his son, Jesus Christ, who was struck for all who believe. And he does give himself right now. As we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long, how long? He gives us himself. To all who believe. His own reality and presence and, and nearness and intimacy and his smile. As Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. This is not a consolation prize, not something we have to settle for there is nothing greater in all this world we don't understand how god draws near and we can't control him but this is real this is incredibly and very real and this is very wonderful as we stumble forward god's real presence gives us strength to wait without self-pity but with resilient good cheer He who knows feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he could care to dare to tell of the abyss of the inward anguish. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my soul as the wind. That was C.H. Spurgeon. He who knows feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he could care to or dare to tell of the abyss 
of an inward anguish. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my soul as the wind, as Spurgeon says. There is a now and a not yet perspective on these promises. The kingdom has been inaugurated with Jesus' death and resurrection and will be realized when he returns. Yes, the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. Yes, there will be hardships and trials. But look at the love that God has poured out on you through his son, Jesus Christ. When he struck, when he poured out, when he pulled out his own sword of justice and struck the true shepherd for you and for me. So that we may have the very presence of God with us. The prize is God himself. As we walk through these trials. Keep your eyes on the promise that was accomplished on the cross. Because we may live in a time of in between. But we are reminded that God will come again and reign as king. As chapter 14 says. The Lord comes to reign as king. In this chapter, we will see that God will return to Jerusalem, that he will defeat all of his enemies by being recognized as the one true king and cleanse the land and his people so that they might worship him in all holiness. As we look at chapter 14, this isn't a new battle. This is a, the same battle that we see previously in a new perspective. The same battle that we see in chapter 12. And as we walk this through, we see how God begins to work. But we see that war is a horrendous thing. But as God comes in verse 4, the Mount of Olives shall be split into two, as it says. God's arrival will split the mountains. And God's people will walk through the valleys as they flee. God will come. And the presence of God will even be to the point that it disrupts, uh, it disrupts creation and the created order. We see this in verse 6. On that day, another reminder that this is tied to chapter 12. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day. Everything is kind of messed up. But on that day, in verse 8... The day, on that day, there will be living waters that should flow out of Jerusalem. And actually, when you think about Jerusalem, this is good. Living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the East Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. It shall continue in summer as, is, as it is in winter. And we see that even with the arrival of, of, of God, that that the waters that would flow through Jerusalem, which would normally dry up, in the summer, continue to flow through the summer just like they would in the winter. There's an abundance that comes. The land is being cleansed and restored. The very presence of our God changes. In Jerusalem, in verse 11, it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. God will pour out on the people who uh, again attack Jerusalem and his people. He will plague them. He will give them a plague that will uh, rot out their eyes and rot their flesh right where they stand and rot their mouths. And in the confusion of this, they will begin to grab at other people. And as they grab at other people, they will begin to kill one another. 
But God will come, and God will fight, and God will reign as king. And in verses 16 to 19, we see that there are two outcomes of God winning this battle, of having this victory. Those who survive will see God as their king, is the first one. They will come and they will celebrate and, and have this festival of booths. And the festival of booths is, is a time where the people of God reflect upon how God had provided for them as they walked through the wilderness. This is kind of like Thanksgiving, but a way bigger party. As they reflect upon God's goodness. It's a time of celebration of how God has provided. It is a time of joy and thanksgiving. And there will be joy and thanksgiving for the harvest and for God's goodness. And if you notice, it's not just the Jews, but also Gentiles who will come. The nations will come and will worship their God. But in verses 7 to 8, we see a very stark reminder of what happens when we reject God as king. God will continue to pour out cursing. And we see here that Egypt is even uh, isolated and pointed out uh, as, as one who will not have rain. But Egypt, unlike other nations, had the Nile. So maybe that is one reason why it is isolated. But nonetheless, it's this, that anyone who rejects God will be plagued. And as Zechariah closes off here, in verses 20 to 21, we see that everything will be holy. We're closed off to end with a picture of God's holiness spreading from God's presence among his people to the point that it even affects the bells that hang around a horse's head and the bowls. All this looks forward to a time when God will return and everything impure will be removed from the temple and the land. See, I long for this time. I see the end of this and I look forward to it with anticipation, but I also see that this is going to cost God's people. The prophet warns people already struggling to remain faithful in difficult circumstances that there will be even greater trials to come. So how in the world can they have strength for today to get through for tomorrow? How can they continue to hold their arm up as they become tired? Because even in the trials as horrific as those that we see in this chapter, they don't destroy God's people. God will deliver them in the end. The prosecutors of God's, the persecutors of God's people are, are more to be uh, pitied than those who uh, they are persecuting. On that last day, every knee will bow before the Lord and his anointed, every, either willingly or unwillingly. How much better to bow willingly now, no matter the costs, than be found holding out against the Lord when time finally runs out. All of life is raised to the level of the sacred for those who have been redeemed, as verses 20 to 21 say. We are all called to show supreme holiness as living stones in God's temple and members of his holy priesthood, as 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says. 
as temples of the Holy Spirit, we are to be separate from all uncleanliness so that we can be wholly devoted to God's service. None of our acts are trivial and none of our duties are secular. In light of God's supreme love for us in the gospel, our whole lives are to be placed on the altar as living sacrifices, as holy to the Lord. So what, you may ask? God's promise, God promises certain victory for his people through Jesus Christ. And that's the, so what? Now I heard, I was reading a story about a, a, a football uh, coach. Uh, the football game, the high school football game was going on. And the team, the home team was losing in a bad way. It seemed like there could be no way, no possible way at all for this team to, to get back. The clock was running out and everyone was incredibly discouraged. And while the coach was obviously incredibly frustrated too. Then he looked to where the cheerleaders were standing. Or may I say, sitting in the grass with their pom-poms down beside them. And their heads were hung low. Irate, the coach ran over to the cheerleaders, and this is what he says to the cheerleaders. He says, girls, don't you think that our team would, be, would do better if you girls would just stand up on their sidelines and cheer? The head cheerleader looked up, and, and sincerely as she could, she said, coach, I think our team would do better if we girls would go out on the field and play. I think you and I can feel like that. Like you're holding your arm above your head and you can't hold it anymore. That the circumstances that you find yourself in are just unbearable. And I know that there are many of you going through times that are unbearable. The feeling that victory is not just an unlikely, uh, is not just unlikely, but is almost humanly impossible. That will be the story of the last days of God's people. The whole world will be bearing down on God's people. The attack will be as such that it will be humanly impossible for any sort of victory to happen. That it, it will feel like defeat is certain. But then Jesus shows up. And he will place his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will change the game. For the person who is resting in Jesus Christ, who believes that Christ has died for him or for her sins and rose again, defeat seems absolutely inevitable. Victory is humanly impossible, but then Jesus shows up. He is the game changer. For the follower of Jesus, victory is on the same road as defeat. Victory just a little further down the road. Victory is just a little bit further down the road. So if you're being defeated right now, if you feel like your arm is getting tired and you can't hold it any longer, if you feel like you're going to be crushed under the weight of the circumstances that you find yourselves in, if you feel like you just can't keep going, If you feel like defeat, if you feel like you're being defeated right now, 
Maybe you're stuck at home with the kids all day. Maybe you're trying to juggle work and kids. Maybe you're uh, st just stuck in the mundane. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're stressed and worried. Maybe you lost your job. Whatever that feeling of being defeated is, be assured. Based on the word of God, your victory is sure in Jesus Christ. Because of his coming, he can have certain victory and the greatest hope. We can have certain victory and the greatest of hopes. God promises certain victory for his people through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the reminder we have through your word. That it is through you that we have a promise of certain victory that only comes through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that during times of uncertainty, and even Lord, we, do, we are in a unique time of uncertainty, but really our lives are full of uncertainty. May we keep our eyes on you. Lord, we know that during this time on this earth, there will be trials and hardships, but there will be certain victory th through Jesus Christ. So Lord, keep our eyes upon you. And for those of us who do not bow the knee to you right now, Lord, I pray that you would give them a heart, that you would take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that enables them to believe and to rest in the good news of Jesus Christ. That you, Father, struck your own son, Jesus Christ, with your sword of justice to pay the price for our sins. Lord, as we continue to worship you, may we just relish in the good news of Jesus Christ. Remind us again of what you have done for us. And amen.